hello. So first off, you've pressed or clicked play on this, which means somebody's told you about this miniseries or this episode, um, or you saw a post about it and you took a chance on it. Um, however you got here, you had to do something to get here. And in some ways, you're kind of taking a leap of faith. And for that, I just want to say thank you. And an extra fist pump to you, or whatever it is that cool kids do, for giving some attention to a local story. It means a lot to me because for my day job, I work at a local newspaper. And this story was inspired by my love for local stories. Um, actually, this whole miniseries is just launching. And yeah, by the way, this episode is part of a miniseries about the Sunshine Coast, which I will explain more about at the end of the episode. Anyways, this miniseries is just launching. It's all about local stories. And with the changing media landscape, it's a lot harder for local stories to see the light of day, especially Canadian ones. Um, I'm kind of hoping with this episode and with the miniseries at large that um, it'll in some way, some really, really small way, it'll add a counterweight to that trend. Um, so thank you for for paying attention and, and for listening. As for this episode, I originally created it for the miniseries, but it ended up getting picked up by Canada Land. It was originally published on Monday, October 10th. A big thank you to Jesse Brown and the Canaland team for their editorial and technical expertise and for taking a chance, just like you are right now, on this episode. If you don't know them, check out the podcast and their other amazing shows. You can find them wherever you subscribe, um, or you can find out more about um, the organization at canadaland.com. They break news, they make news, um, they cover Canadian media, current affairs, politics. They do it in a really lively, highly critical, as in critical thinking, <laughs> critical um, way, and they're not derivative. They are doing their own thing, and they're doing it really, really well. So, yeah. Thank you, Candleland. Thank you, person listening. And on with the show. So how long is this guest list? Uh, we're about 56. Oh, my God. So I'm here at Molly's Reach Restaurant in the heart of Gibson's a stunning seaside tourist town near Vancouver. Today, the restaurant is closed to the public for a special celebration. The crowd is a who's who of a very niche slice of the West Coast entertainment industry, albeit a tad dated one. Hello, John. Good to see you. I'm surrounded by producers, writers, actors, and executives. Granted, many have passed the peak of their careers. I heard you were big in the 90s. I, well, I wasn't as big as I am now. You set me up for that. So what's your name anyway? Vicky Gabbaro. Oh, yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> Local media are also here. Radio's here as well. And veteran journalist Duncan McHugh is scoping up the scene and interviewing guests for a documentary he's working on. It's amidst all of this very Canadian, very CBC, very grey star power that I stumble upon a unicorn. So I'm like sort of like a low-key, gigantic fan of the Beachcombers. And um, I'm like so impressed with myself that I got invited to this event. It like actually means everything to me. Can I be rude and ask your age? Oh, I was born in 87, so I'm 34. You're a millennial. Yeah, I guess so. 
but what the heck? Jana is a beautiful, precious unicorn. She is a millennial and... Sort of like a low-key, gigantic fan of the Beachcombers. If you're a fan of the Beachcombers, the scene I've just described probably all makes sense. Maybe you've even guessed that the special event at Molly's Reach restaurant is the 50th anniversary of the first airing of one of the most successful Canadian television series of all time. The television series known as The Beachcombers. The television show that, despite fan demand, has remained off CBC's airwaves since 1990. So as like a millennial, I can't believe I'm saying millennial beachcomber fan, but as a millennial beachcomber fan, um, does it feel like, man, I'm a very rare bird right now? In life? Um, at times, I do feel like a rare bird. I think almost every month for the last like decade, I've gone onto CBC dot com or whatever and like looked up to see if like you know if they're showing and I'm always disappointed that they're not I do understand that there are like issues in the background scenes of trying to get the episodes out there Um, and even though she admits it's a bit odd to be young and into a television show that stopped airing in the 1990s she's also convinced that if the CBC brought it back this unicorn might find a herd I think there's a real opportunity for there to be a surge of like a whole new generation of people to love this, you know, what's going on here. And it's still kind of the the, the real beachcomber life is still going. Is it though? Yeah, it's struggling. <laughs> um, and there's only a few people out there, but I mean, it's like it's still a thing. And I'll get to the whole struggling beachcomber life thing in a bit. But first, for the rest of you who are under 40 and have maybe never heard of the beachcombers, let alone become a low-key, gigantic fan, here is a tiny taste. Consider it your gateway drug. Cue the theme music. The Beachcombers television series introduced the scenic majesty of British Columbia to millions of viewers worldwide from 1972 to 1990, making it one of the CBC's most iconic Canadian shows, not to mention among Canada's longest-running scripted television series of all time, with 387 episodes in its run. Yes, 387. It's an astonishing number for any live-action scripted series. The Beachcombers was largely panned by critics, but that didn't matter. It was a show for the ordinary hero, a show about hardworking folks trying to get by, albeit in one of the most striking landscapes Canada has to offer. Its popularity is astounding, given how quirky the show was. It had such an obscure premise, it's hard to believe the CBC even greenlit it in the first place. But they did, and it was magic. Bruno Gerussi played Nick Adonidas. Day. I'm Nick A thickly mustachioed Greek immigrant who made his living collecting logs festooning the coastal waters around Gibsons. Well, I don't want to disturb your uh, picnic or whatever, but my partner and me have come to get this log that you're all sitting on. His business partner, Jesse Jim, was played by Shishal Nation actor Pat John. Oh, I won! The lottery? How much? First prize. I can't believe it. I've never won anything before. How much? That's great, Jesse. How much did we win? We didn't win money. I won a contest. Oh. The freezer full of beef. Relic was the arch rival. You're even crazier than I thought, Adonidas. And Molly owned the eponymously named Molly's Reach Cafe, 
the all-important gathering place where comeuppances were had and comic relief begotten. Nick? What's wrong? The stew. Your stew is fantastic. It floated right through the air. And then, of course, there's the amphibious star of the show. Fans, you know the engine sound. I'm talking about a vessel named John Henry, whose humble origins as a real-life log-salving boat made it the perfect fit for the role of a fictional log-salving boat. I'm talking about a boat named Persephone. That boat is so loved by Beachcombers fans and by the town of Gibsons that up until recently, it was proudly displayed in the middle of town, a stone's throw away from Molly's Reach restaurant. In many ways, she's one of the last surviving icons of the show. Bruno Gerussi died in 1995. Pat John died earlier this year. Rest in peace. Persephone was such a going concern. Fans of the show would pose in front of the boat for photographs. Part of what made the show such a juggernaut was the location itself. Unlike Schitt's Creek or Dog River, Gibson's was, and as far as I know still is, a real place. The town has been described as its own character on the show. And because the series was shot on location, it put the tiny seaside town on the map for millions of viewers around the world. A Sunshine Coast tourism official I talked to at the 50th anniversary party, he said the Beachcombers created a legacy for the town of Gibsons itself. So that all is encapsulated right where we're standing, in Molly's Reach, and it's one of the most iconic locations, most iconic restaurants in internationally. Like, wow, it's recognized around the world. So we're literally standing in a piece of living history. Do you think it's weird that CBC doesn't air any reruns? I'm, I'm, I'm a little sad that the CBC is missing this opportunity. Maybe they're not. Maybe they got something cooked up. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, this is something they created, and it's an important legacy for Canada. The tourist official and Jana, the superfan, are lamenting something that I've also noticed since I moved here a few years ago to work at the local newspaper. That something is the fact that even though The Beachcombers is alive and well in Gibsons, the old show has an aging fan base that ain't getting any younger, thanks in part to the fact that the show is so damned hard to find, especially the early episodes. Specialty channel APTN is the only television network that's airing reruns of The Beachcombers these days. And even then, it's only a portion of the show's 387 episodes. As for the CBC, the network that created the show, it hasn't broadcast a single episode nationally since December 12, 1990. And zero reruns exist on its streaming platform, GEM. In the past, some episodes could be streamed on Amazon Prime, but not anymore. And, adding insult to injury, they were only accessible in the United States. And forget about looking for a DVD or Blu-ray box set, because those don't exist either. That makes YouTube the only option for Canadians without cable. But even then, they're just bad quality, illegally pirated episodes from APTN and Prime. In fact, the only place a member of the public can watch the show legally and without a specialty cable subscription is down the street from Ollie's Reach at the Sunshine Coast Museum and Archives, where three episodes run on a loop. And believe it or not, 
that makes the museum a popular destination for Beachcombers fans. Here's the museum's curator. The Beachcomber fans, when they do come in, they're very excited. They will run upstairs and uh, definitely stand around or sit down and, and watch a Beachcombers episode. What all this adds up to is, depressingly, at least for the town of Gibsons, and not to get too hyperbolic, maybe even this great country, the Beachcombers is basically beached. And it's depressing for another important reason, too. And it's one veteran journalist Duncan McHugh told me about, too, outside Molly's Reach. Jesse on the Beachcombers was the first time that I ever saw what I would call a real Indian. Not a beads and buckskin Indian, not a feather Indian, not a tanto, oh, yeah, me kimosabi. You know, uh, not that Hollywood stereotype that had surrounded me as a child. Jesse looked like my uncles. Jesse looked like people that walked around in my community. Jesse was someone with a big smile and long black hair and he wore flannel shirts. That was a guy that I recognized. And all of a sudden, he was on our TV screens. You're a lucky man, my friend. You got a nice family. We're all family, Nick. Don't you forget it. In other words, The fact that APTN, that is, the Aboriginal People's Television Network, is the only channel to air reruns these days, is no coincidence. In addition to Pat John's role as Jesse Jim, the show featured a number of other Indigenous actors, including Charlene Alec, who's now a counselor for the Tsleil-Waututh First Nation in BC. Actor and activist Chief Dan George made guest appearances before his death in 1981. Subjects like colonialism and land claims were featured on the show. Behind the scenes, two scripts were penned by First Nations writers, Drew Hayden Taylor and Michael Dockstader. The impact of seeing ourselves on, on TV, it had a huge impact. And we saw that when Pat John passed away this summer, because there was just this outpouring from Indigenous viewers about our love for Jesse and that character and how much he meant to us. And now... I can look back and I see flaws in the ways that Indigenous people were represented in that series. I know that there were, not until very late in its run, there, there were no Indigenous writers involved. Um, and it was groundbreaking in many ways, but there, there was also problematic uh, representation of Jesse and his family. Um, but for what it was at the time, it was huge. When I emailed APTN to ask why it airs reruns, APTN's director of TV content, Adam Garnett-Jones, said The Beachcombers is, in quotes, the show most requested by our viewers. It's kind of striking that a show from the 1970s would manage to portray Indigenous lives in a way that resonates today for viewers of APTN. You would think that with impact like that, the CBC would have even more incentive to get reruns on GEM, or at the very least, make DVDs available. But instead, well, just listen to this. Be sure to watch classic episodes of The Beachcombers. You can find them on YouTube or the Friends of The Beachcombers Facebook group. That was CBC personality Grant Lawrence during a segment in late September, honoring the show's 50th anniversary by directing people to watch pirated episodes. Pirated episodes on YouTube. He didn't even mention APTN, which I'm assuming was just an honest mistake. Still, 
Fans and people who worked on the show champion it. There's an active Facebook fan page. There's been at least one petition calling for its return. The fight has even turned mildly political. Being able to watch the beachcombers again, Mr. Speaker, is in the national interest. <laughs> it is the longest... It is the longest-running drama in the history of the CBC. I'm calling on the CBC, our national broadcaster, to make this classic television series available again for the enjoyment of not just Canadians, but fans around the world. Thank you very much. That's BC MLA Nicholas Simons back in 2018 calling out the CBC on the floor of the legislature for failing to make the show available to Canadians. Which makes me think about the town of Gibsons and the boat, Persephone. That great icon of the show, which once stood in all her glory in the middle of town. It makes me wonder, what does Beachcomber's slow march into obscurity mean for a town that's so attached to the show's success? The problem became apparent the moment I stopped talking to fans and started talking to tourists. In Gibson's, where you can buy a latte at Beachcomber's Coffee and a craft beer at Persephone Brewing, and where the fictional restaurant Molly's Reach is actually a real restaurant. About half the tourists I spoke with for a very scientific survey I conducted over a couple of afternoons in the summer had either never heard of the Beachcombers or never watched it. Have you, have you heard of the Beachcombers? No. Did you know that the Beachcombers um, was filmed here in Gibson's? No. Yeah, have you heard of it? No. no. <laughs> Sorry. Did you know it was filmed here? <laughs> no, 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 no. The odds got a lot lower when I spoke to millennials. And you've never watched an episode of The Beachcombers? Not, no. And it only sounds vaguely familiar to me as well. <laughs> I've never, like, actually, I don't, I can't recall that I've ever seen anything. Oh, so you have, like, no concept? No concept, zero. I even met someone who lives in Bruno Gerussi's house. And even she and her parents aren't Beachcombers fans. So I haven't, I've seen like one episode of the Beachcombers. Oh my goodness, are you going to get evicted for that? Um, possibly, possibly. And I don't think it even had Bruno Gerussi in it. This town's identity is wrapped up in the idea of a show that's becoming increasingly obscure, especially for young Canadians. It feels like the tides of history have turned, but the town of Gibsons hasn't changed. Maybe it feels like that because I'm one of the millions of millennials who's never had a chance to watch it. And so, to get to the bottom of it all, I turned to a man who took me on a trip to an undisclosed location to see about a boat. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say what road we're on because we don't want an inundation of people going to see this vessel that we're going to see. Although it's on the public record where it's being stored. It is, I know, I know. But, you know, people show up uh, thinking it's a public access spot. And like it really, to look for the Persephone? To look for the Persephone, yeah. yeah. That's so, David Kroll. Um, you heard him at the start of the show giving a rundown of the guest list. Weeks before that party, David took me on a drive to a totally disclosed, undisclosed location to take a look at the boat that to me symbolizes this turning historical tide. So here we are, sad Persephone, sitting on blocks in the public works yard, which isn't a public place. It's just terminology. Undisclosed location. Undisclosed location, yeah. yeah. 
Standing in front of Persephone with David, there's a touch of contrition in the atmosphere, like running into an old friend after a fall from grace. How does it make you feel looking at uh, the boat in this this condition? Well, you know, it was Like, honestly, how does it make you feel? It's sort of sad. It's sad because, for all her star power, these days Persephone is pretty washed up. She's practically a wreck. Like her Greek myth eponym, Persephone seems more queen of the dead than Canadian television royalty. As I mentioned earlier, she used to sit right smack in the middle of town. She was moved last year because the land she was sitting on is slated for development. Now she's in purgatory. The town is keen to figure out a way to return her to her pride of place in another public location. But until then, she's languishing like some abandoned lawn furniture. Yeah, yeah. And who is David Kroll, by the way? And why is he showing me this sad little boat in this totally disclosed, undisclosed location? These days, he's a counselor for the town of Gibsons. But equally important, he was a set designer for the Beachcombers and art director for two Beachcombers spin-off movies. He became an all-round legend over the 40 years he worked at the CBC in Vancouver. Now in his 70s, he sports glasses on his face and a perpetually talkative phone in his belt holster. That's going to be my sister. And perhaps because of all that, David Kroll ended up being the man willing to find a way to bring Persephone back to a public location befitting of a queen and revive her legendary status, even as the onward march of time threatens the show's relevance for upcoming generations. That little vessel, it'd be interesting to go through all the episodes of Beachcombers and how many people did that vessel rescue? You know, some of the people that rode on it, you know, David Suzuki, Gordon Pinsent, um, Francis Highland, you know, all these classic Canadian actors who were part of the um, series that brought families to the television screen at 7 o'clock on Sunday nights. At the Gibson's Public Works yard... David tells me the last time he visited the Persephone was with a film crew from an episode of another CBC show. I'm on a mission to find the funny in the places you'd least expect it. Canada's struggling small towns. It's called Still Standing. It's all about how small towns respond to big challenges. David was actually the one who got the show to come to Gibson's. So the CBC, the network that made The Beachcombers, hasn't aired any episodes nationally since 1990, But it will be airing a show about how the town of Gibsons is transformed because of the beachcombers. After we visit the Persephone, David takes me back to his home. Inside, one of David's cats refuses to leave his lap during the interview. And the noise you can hear is Boots, the 17-year-old cat who thinks he's everyone's favorite. Until he wants fed at 4.30 in the morning, and then he's not. And then there's David's clock collection. You don't like clocks? I mean, I like clocks. You have a lot of clocks in this house. <laughs> Amidst the cats and the clocks and the many, many books surrounding us in his living room, I learned about David's plans for the Persephone. In 2020, BC Ferry's former CEO, Mark Collins, promised money to complete the boat's restoration. I panicked a bit when Mark Collins was let go. So I, I sent them an email saying, you know, touchy subject, but are we still good? And they said, yes, we're still good. 
The plan now is to return the boat, once it's restored, to a park near its former location at the Five Corners intersection in the middle of town. It feels like the universe is saying, forget about the beachcombers. And yet, Gibson's straight-up refuses. David Kroll straight-up refuses. APTN straight-up refuses. I find it really strange that there is... That the town's identity is still wrapped up with the idea of the beachcombers when it's, like, basically... Not to use the word relic. It's a piece of the past. It's well, it, yeah, it's past. a piece of history. Um, but it's one that we can't, like... You know, the city of Boston still still celebrates Paul Revere's ride. Yeah, but he's you know, a real guy. This is, this is a show that... Yeah, was, that, so that's, that's history in a different context. Look at Hope. They have a frigging statue of Sylvester Stallone, right, for one movie that was shot in the town. Rambo! Rambo, don't do it! Listen to me, Rambo. You have no chance. And people come from all over the place, you know. But you can see that movie. Yeah, yeah, there, that is the difference. Um, you know, it's... You know, I think CBC is very short-sighted. They potentially could very simply, you know, for probably half a million dollars or less, re-release all the shows. I don't have those numbers, by the way. A CBC spokesperson cited confidentiality when I asked how much it would cost to air episodes. But when I asked why the corporation doesn't air or stream reruns, the answer did boil down to money. According to the spokesperson, it would cost too much to negotiate deals or seek permissions with the rights holders. More precisely, she wrote, in total... The fees and costs which would be needed to make every single episode available online or on television or on DVD are very significant, end quotes. That's believable, but also not satisfying. Before I got this email, I had also been checking with other sources about this conundrum. One of those sources was a retired RCMP officer who, lucky for me, has been investigating the issue for years, for decades. He actually leaked information from the CBC to me over the phone. Hi, Jackson? It's gotta be me. Pardon the quality. It was a hasty call, and I wasn't expecting him to drop this bombshell. Well, you know what? I, I, I think probably it's now time to... I hope I won't get in trouble for doing this. Oh, well. Um, I, I've, been, I, I've been trying to get the CBC, uh, and, I, and I'm... I'm even though I, do, I did grow up in Alberta. <laughs> I'm on tenterhooks here. You can't go into a segue. you got to tell me what you're about to say. I know, I'm terrible. I told you, though, how I quickly changed gears. My students hate it. So the fans have already guessed it. But for the rest of you, that's actor Jackson Davies, a.k.a. RCMP Constable John Constable, a.k.a. Beachcomber Funny Guy, and the star of the short-lived spinoff Constable Constable. Or, as David Kroll describes him... Jackson Davies, you know, bless his pea-picking little heart. He's one of the last of the town criers for the series. Jackson has been advocating for the show since the 1990s. He's fought for it in all sorts of behind-the-scenes ways, including recently pitching the release of reruns to coincide with the October 2022 50th anniversary of the airing of the first episode. Whew. 
He does this, by the way, while also teaching drama at Capilano University, where his students... They have no idea who I am, which is fun. Except about three weeks in, they go, they go I was talking to my, my parents, and they, they know you. You used to be somebody. Uh, Anyways, he was the first to break the news to me that... We do have six. What? And I, and I actually and I emailed them today on Jim. Uh, I emailed and said, hey, listen, I'm doing this interview with this wonderful person I was talking about even before I talked to you. I said, and I, I want to be able to tell her something, right? Uh, am I okay to say that? Am I okay to say that we're working on something? Uh, and, uh, uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So oh, that's, okay. I hope he doesn't get in trouble. So, so now the, the good news is that they're, they're, they're going to see some shows on Jim that they haven't seen in, in 40 years. And uh, there's a couple, there's one with Chief Dan George. There's a couple with Chief Dan George. There's one with Gordon Pinsent. Mm-hmm. There's one with Irene Simard. Probably these names mean nothing to you. These names uh, mean something to me. Almost, almost as much as Bruno Gerussi. <laughs> so, yeah. After decades of advocacy, a selection of episodes are set to stream on CBC Gem. While the CBC wouldn't confirm the exact number, Jackson told me there would be six, which would be less than 2% of the entire series. As exciting as a handful of shows may be for fans, it's definitely not a satisfying number for Jackson Davies. How do I feel? Yeah. I feel, you know, I feel... I feel like a boxer that that went 15 rounds and then maybe had a draw. <laughs> didn't lose it, you know, didn't lose it, but won a little bit. Uh, I guess the frustrating the uh, news for me is, can't we do any more than six? Hmm. Jackson would also be the first to answer that question. So it is a complicated dog's breakfast. Thanks in part to its unprecedented success, the show became bogged down in disputes over royalties, residuals, and other forms of payment. Remember how the show aired in 60 countries? It was also licensed to other networks, and CBC faced accusation it hadn't properly compensated writers, performers, and others for those international and national broadcasts. Jackson says by now all of those disputes would have been resolved. But getting agreements into place that take into account today's media landscape, including streaming platforms, makes it, well... Complicated dog's breakfast. I would think that the CBC would want to do something. And I think the CBC does want to do something. I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't. And I just think that maybe uh, it's a very complicated contract. But, like... I tried to say to someone else, hey, if, you know, if the corporation wants to do it, they'll do it. As for David Kroll, back at his home, he tells me the show hasn't been aired for another reason entirely. It's a horrible thing to say, but if you go to CBC Toronto and mention the beachcombers, it's like you farted in the elevator. That's a reaction you get. For David, the whole thing boils down to pride. So it's like it's like a little bit embarrassing and people don't want to talk about it. It's it, the it's, longest running television series in Canada's history. Yeah, but it wasn't a Toronto concept. It was a CBC Vancouver concept. So you think it's it's pride over A people. lot of it is, yeah. When I worked at CBC, we had shows. You know, one person gets booted out, another person gets in. So anything that's in production that that other person's done, they immediately cancel because they don't want it to be a success because it would reflect on the other person. 
It's that petty. I mean, I can't confirm any of what you're saying. No, no. And and if you went to CBC Toronto, they'd say, oh, yeah, it was a great show. But it's, 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 it's lived its life. So, yes, the theories abound as to why CBC is keeping beachcombers in the vault. The closest I got to a reason was when I asked CBC whether it was fair to say the corporation doesn't see a business case for airing reruns. In an email, a spokesperson responded that while it recognizes the, in quotes, strong legacy and popularity of the beachcombers, we are committed to making the most of our programming budgets by producing new, original content from diverse voices and creators. So viewers today see themselves represented in truly authentic Canadian programming. But before superfans get too distraught over this, I'm going to drop one more ray of hope. It's a ray of hope that first dropped at the Beachcomber's 50th anniversary party. So um, it's probably the best time and the best place uh, to announce that this past week we actually signed a rights agreement with Lynn Susan Strange and the estate of Mark Strange to do an animated Beachcomber's. That's cool, that's cool. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, it's thrilling to get the opportunity to carry this whole thing forward. That's Um, Nick Orchard, a former Beachcombers production manager and now president of Soapbox Productions, announcing development is underway for a new animated series. The animated show is still in development, and they haven't pitched to any broadcast or streaming companies. Will you be pitching to CBC? Um, Possibly. Possibly. It's a different age. And and here's the thing. We are not doing uh, the show as a nostalgia piece. It will be nostalgic for, of course, people who remember it. But there's a whole generation of young Canadians that don't know anything about the beachcombers. And we are also going to aim squarely at, at foreign markets like the United States. So it's got to be you know, contemporary storylines that strike a chord with everybody in the way the original series did. But Um, even if we knew the exact reason CBC refuses to go the rerun route, and even if Netflix ran a peppy animated reboot for Gen Z, it still wouldn't stop what's happening in Gibson's right now, what's happening in the life of David Kroll. Which is to say, it wouldn't stop the fight to retain some physical evidence of the original show's existence, by way of an eight-ton boat named Persephone. You know, one of our designers at CBC, a fellow by the name of Dan Phillips, Dan made a statement that I'm constantly quoting, don't fall in love with your horse. Have you fallen in love with your horse? I try not to. You know, because, you know, the reality is sooner or later it's going to go lame, you're going to have to shoot it and possibly eat it. So... How close are we to that point? Well, I don't, I don't know. So it sounds like you're not going to give up on the beachcombers anytime soon. Uh, you know, I, it, everything and you know, don't fall in love with your horse. You know, I, I'm dealing with a reality. You know, it's not everyone's favorite flavor. You know, a lot of people that move to this town, all they want to do is buy a big house, run their short-term rental, make money. Are you sad about that? Well, that was one of the aspects that when I was doing the talking points for Still Standing that sort of bothered me. I thought, oh, it was a part of this thing that has changed the town from what I first fell in love with when I moved here in 
79. What I fell in love with when I first flew in here in 77. Um, you know, it's, yeah, that's gone. Right here. This is when I started to really understand what this is all about for David. I started thinking about it on the drive back from seeing the Persephone, when David recounted the story of his pitch to that other CBC show, Still Standing. Figure an angle on Gibson's, like what the town was, that it was a fishing village, it was, you know, beachcombing, it was logging, it was the pulp mill. And what is it today? It's a, it's a lifestyles community that is, is sort of desperately attached to tourism. Um, you know, huge change for original residents of a community who were, you know, the workers and what the town has become. Um, so anyway... David is right. The... There's so much about Gibsons that would be unrecognizable to anyone making their paycheck from salvaging logs in the 1970s. From the trendy beachcomber latte to the Persephone craft beer, even Molly's Reach a place that was once festooned with photos and other memorabilia from the set, has been recently redone. There's still photos, but it's shinier and sleeker. And it all speaks to a shift in the economy here, the public consciousness even. It speaks to a new identity, that when I'm feeling cynical, might be an idealized, Instagrammable, maybe even fictionalized version of itself. It's something even Jana, the superfan, mentioned. Right now, there isn't so much, there isn't like a strong industry in on the coast, but the strongest industry is now tourism. It, you know, it used to be film, it used to be logging, working at the mill, that kind of stuff. Um, so that's changed, and I get a big kick out of the fact that Molly's Reach is actually a restaurant now. Because um, that we're sitting at. Yeah, that, and yeah, it's, when I was a kid, it was like all of the windows were boarded up, and it was like kind of a spooky place, actually, like to me. I remember looking through the boards, and there was like, you know, sheets covering stuff and it just looked like, you know, it was really spooky. And uh, the tourism industry has kind of like fetishized the beachcombers and the restaurant and they're like, we're here. In a lot of places in Gibson's, gone is the working class character that wants to find the place for millions of viewers worldwide in a popular series that started its run 50 years ago. It's so ironic. It's like the show itself preserved Gibsons, and now we're attempting collectively to preserve a show that preserved Gibsons, which has act and while well, the town has actually turned into something totally different because of the show. Yeah, you're almost uh, as you were saying that I was picturing the infinity symbol. Um, yeah, well, I said every action has an inverse and opposite reaction. So it's um, there's probably a, a modicum of truth to it. Um, you know, it's it would be interesting. You know, I, I love time travel shows. It would be interesting to go back, you know, to seventy one and see see how things played out. Without beachcombers. Except we can't go back in time. We can't know whether the beachcombers ushered in an era of lifestyle tourism that's slowly squeezing the life out of the working class folks who inspired the beachcomber series in the first place. 
And we can't know what would happen if the CBC did suddenly decide to air and stream every last episode. All we have is a town that's fully embraced its past, even as it changes despite itself, and a broadcasting corporation with little interest in changing course. All the while, a washed-up star named Persephone still hangs in the balance. A star and a show, and maybe even a small town, all of them fighting a fade into obscurity. All of them still standing. All right, folks. So that's it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by me, Sophie Woodruff, with assistance from Canada Land's news editor, Jonathan Goldsby, and audio and technical producer, Tristan Capicione. The coaster's logo and site was designed by Laura Service. Intro and outro music by Blue Dot Sessions. James Bowers created music specifically for this podcast. You didn't hear it in this episode, but if you check out the trailer and future podcast episodes, you will hear him. So thank you, James. If you liked what you heard, please, please, please take your phone out of your pocket and rate this show or subscribe to it or both. Leave a little review about this episode or share it. Tell your friends, tell your Gen X brother-in-law who's into boat maintenance because of the beachcombers or your friend's friend who you know moved to Vancouver a couple years ago. Send it to your grandmother. Send it to your colleague who does nothing but listen to podcasts while he works. If you liked this show, if you liked this episode, please share it um, because I think, okay, well, I kind of, I like, I hope people will take pleasure from this show. I hope it will be a gift that you can freely give and give often. Anyways, one more thing. Um, I mentioned this is part of a mini-series, so quick word on that. I've been working on this mini-series for about a year now, um, on and off, with help from a bunch of amazing people. Um, It's a mini-series about community and the small stories that define us. It takes place on the Sunshine Coast, BC, which is home to the Squamish and Shishal Nations. And the stories featured on this mini-series are inspired by my love for local stories. I think If they're given the right kind of treatment, local stories can really become universal stories. Um, Yeah, and this is my aim with this podcast. So whether you live here or whether you've never heard of the Sunshine Coast, um, my hope is that you will listen to these stories and they will resonate with you. Go local storytelling. Um, Anyways, some episodes, they'll be trickling out over the next few months. So the best way to stay on top of episodes is to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you prefer the socials, you can follow the show on Twitter at thecoasters underscore pod and on Instagram at thecoasters underscore pod. And if you want more details about the show, including all the amazing people who helped with it, uh, you can also visit coasterspodcast.com. All right. See you next time. And thank you. Thank you for listening.